0: Shut up and sit down. By all means, go for it. Have fun. Just leave along. People are coming together more and more and more and more as the government has been failing us more and more. I'm against <laughs> being shitty to people. You
1: can't research your way into understanding somebody. One way or another, I'd rather have the fight now. Weird that it doesn't play that through the computer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fight for Liberty Live. We are here with Jeff Shipley, state rep from Iowa. Uh, He was one of the panelists last night on the Liberty Legislators panel and had had a lot of awesome things to say there. He's working on some good legislation, so we're going to have a little conversation about how he got elected and what he's been doing since he got there. Jeff, thanks for, so much for coming
0: on. Hey, it's a pleasure
1: to be with you. A
0: great opportunity to be with the Young Americans for Liberty in Kissimmee, Florida. This is a great event, obviously coming
1: after a pretty tough year for liberty, and and uh, so yeah, delighted to be with you today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so, what's what's been your favorite part about the event so far?
0: That's a great. Other question. than being
1: like semi-famous.
0: Um, that's been kind of weird. I mean, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't consider myself semi-famous. We had a nice. Um, I think the interaction last night on stage went. Well, you know, you're always kind of kicking yourself on what you maybe could have said better. Mm-hmm. None of us are really prepared to have the talk show type format, but maybe we should be for, I'd say, I think that my favorite part is just getting out, seeing the country. I was able to visit a good friend in Georgia on the way down here. And nice. then you connect here, you you know, uh, being able to hang out with the people that you kind of work with over the phone mm-hmm. and, and just being in the same room with a lot of great people and a lot of same people who are asking good questions obviously the ron paul entrance last night was rather epic yes. and, and probably pretty history making in his own regard so yeah that was that was probably the highlight so far was just seeing ron paul still bringing down the house as an octogenarian still saying the same thing he said <laughs> 10 years ago and these young college kids still jumping out of their seats it brought mm-hmm. uh you know warmed the cockles of my heart
1: <laughs> yeah it was i loved how he still brought everything back to the federal reserve his entire speech still came back to the federal reserve yeah it's been I like 14 can... years since his run and it's still the same consistent message well, and it's great
0: and i'm glad that we're able to kind of fill in the gaps i feel like he didn't art- articulate to the fullest extent kind of how the the structure of these massive corporations have been enabled by easy fed monetary policy mm-hmm. he kind of glossed over that a little bit in his covid connection so i was kind of looking like look, looking around trying to figure out exactly what he was saying, but everyone just loved it because a uh, long story short, people know they're getting ripped off and mm-hmm. people know they're not being treated fair. And so anyway, that, that shined through and a lot of great energy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was, I am glad I had never heard him speak in person before. Oh, wow. So that was, that was a first for me. That was fantastic. A good time. But I definitely have to echo like getting to finally meet a lot of the people that I've interacted with online this weekend has been awesome. There's people that, you know, I've had on my show that and or even you know have been in meetings with or lots of phone calls or just Twitter interactions and then you know fifty of them are all in the same room. It's been kind of fun.
0: Well just a comment it's really funny to see how people's online personalities, especially with the Twitter sphere, how that differs from people in real life. And so mm-hmm. someone who might be really obnoxious and outgoing on Twitter is actually really shy and reserved when you see him in person. And yeah I kind of appreciate seeing that kind of paradox or juxtaposition as well. So it is yep. fun getting
1: to know everyone.
0: And, uh, yeah, bringing in, in the Internet to life here. So.
1: All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, how you got elected. You ran against the incumbent. You won with by what was it, one, 166 votes. In
0: 2020, we had a
1: 166-vote margin. Yeah, we were initially elected in 2018 by right.
0: 37 votes after the recount, uh, which was a pretty narrow race. Um, so, yeah, we felt very fortunate and, and were able to get the support of the people. And, and obviously, re-election was um, – A whole ordeal of itself. But yeah, it's a really great feeling being reelected and getting the affirmation from the people that support you and gives you that kind of wind at your back to Mm -hmm. hopefully do a good job for them. So it's been interesting because just the issues and the schisms in our political culture, we're living obviously in a very different reality than we were in summer of 2018 when I was kind of debating or visualizing what serving this position might look like. Right. So it's been very different than... um, you know, what I expected getting
1: into it. So. Right. so I know we talk a lot, especially in the Liberty movement about, you know, the politicians that are just, uh, working to get reelected. How does it feel to, you know, be in that position where you were, you did have to spend part of your time in office working on just getting reelected. How'd you balance that and not be just one of those, those people?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of came out swinging from some of my first votes were, um, very controversial votes against the public school system Mm. and i had made up my mind in the 2018 campaign that said if i'm going to go through all this trouble if i'm going to speak to the people i'm going to i'm going to say what i really feel at least to the greatest extent and i'm going to let the chips fall where they may and Mm -hmm. i'm going to be less concerned about how someone might interpret it i'm more concerned about this that what i'm saying is truthful and that i feel good about what i'm saying and i'm confident that what i'm saying Um, is beneficial or needs to be heard Mm -hmm. and the whole like okay what what is my unique contribution to um you know the, the the politics of Iowa what what can I bring to the table that no one else can and so that's what I was most concerned about is just kind of being true to that that reason that purpose and then just having the faith that you know things will work out and that hopefully If I'm coming from a good place that truly wants to serve and help the people, Mm -hmm. hopefully they recognize that. And and thankfully they did, um, even though there was a massive paid spending campaign that obviously it was very interesting, just the, the element of campaigning and how you can have the best of intentions, but you have opponents that are working full time to characterize you in a certain way or paint you in a certain paint you as dangerous so yep. it's been very interesting navigating that yeah. and learning as we go mm-hmm. um, i think i've had a cl- couple experiences uh, the speaker of the house joked you know being a cat with nine lives like you know how many how many near kind of misses can you get and um <laughs> so yeah because we've been in there throwing some controversy around and, and drawing mm-hmm. a lot of attention to ourselves not necessarily deliberately but just as a natural outgrowth of, of taking a principal position or an outspoken position on an issue mm-hmm. So it's it's been interesting, and we're learning a lot. I think a lot of people are learning through us.
1: So that's awesome. What are some of some of those con- more controversial uh, issues that you guys were starting out with?
0: Well, so the school thing, um, that was you know one of the, as far as state politics is concerned, you know that's one of the third rail of politics. Is that no matter what, we're going to raise the public school funding by a certain amount, and then yep. we're going to. You know just be all confused why do the schools keep getting worse and worse why are they indoctrinating our children against us why are all the kids depressed why are they so fat and oh we're going to keep giving them another hundred million dollars each and every year so i said no i don't want if we're going to spend all this money I think when you spend a little bit of time up front to make sure it's being well spent, mm-hmm. that there's a lot of resources on the table, that there are a lot of uh, insufficiencies and things that need to be addressed within our education system. One of the first things I did before, after I was elected as a, before I was sworn in as a state representative elect, I toured one of my local community school districts and I went around like looking, what are the smallest kind of things that I could try to improve upon and start a conversation. And it's extraordinarily difficult because my big thing was margarine. I'm personally offended. I take it very personal when someone tries to serve me in hydrogenated soybean oil. I take that as a personal insult. I take that as an inflammatory biological attack against my, my being, my body temple. And that giving hydrogenated soybean oil to kids each and every day, again, maybe if you want to have that in your Little Debbie snack cake a couple times a week after football practice or something, all right, in moderation. But if you're going to eat soybean oil every single day on your mashed potatoes or whatever, you need to really prepare for inflammatory havoc because I think that's a molecule that's not conducive to health and not conducive to homeostasis in the body. So it's like, okay, what would it take of instead of giving hydrogenated soybean oil margarine to the kids, how about we offer them butter or a higher oil alternative, maybe a coconut oil spread or something that's less inflammatory even mm. canola oil which some people would upset that I even mention it but i think that's probably healthier than yeah um, i could just have options you know we want we want choices we want to make sure that the kids are going to get their potatoes down that they can choose between butter whatever they want a vegan anyway mm-hmm. and just a list of why we can't even discuss that oh because okay we got kids with allergies uh, it's going to be more expensive the margarine's about a penny this butter chip is about two and a half cents or five cents whatever it was and then the big thing is that we have federal regulations, and we have a local bureaucrat um, uh, analyzing every single school food. That every single food we serve in school to kids has to go through the local bureaucrat, and is is it goes to the desk of the state bureaucrat to make sure that it's in compliance with the federal bureaucrat. So you have state, federal, and local paid bureaucrat employees analyzing what the kids are eating. And oh, if you shift that amount a little bit because you have you know, a very strict portion of trans fat for saturated fat. And so if we swap this around, it would mess up our whole menu. Would have You know, it'd be hours and hours of staff time even to comprehend your suggestion. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, my God, it's a lot worse than I thought, you know. And it's just like you can't even start a discussion because they have mountains of reasons on why it's not worth their time or why they're pro- prohibited from law from discussing it because this federal school food money um, – you know, equals a sizable chunk of money. So it's extraordinarily yeah. complicated. So from the very get go, I'm like, well, I don't want to continue financing that system. I want to have a conversation on how uh, is the behavioral health of students? How is the educational performance of students? How is that connected to health and nutrition? How is the uh, uh, epidemic of anxiety and depression um, related to nutrition. I want you to know, I want to explore this. How can we, how can we get our children invested in a healthy lifestyle and control over their diet in a way that carries forward for the rest of their lives? So we don't have uh, six of 10 adults, you know, with nagging chronic conditions.
1: Um, right.
0: it, uh, it, I was going to say enslaved, that's probably an overreaction, but, but dependent on this healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, there's just a lot, a lot I want to dive in and sink my teeth into. And a lot of institutional forces that protect the status quo mm-hmm. and just stimmy anyone who wants to be a reformer. Um, so I was very frustrated about that, noticing that from the very first weeks in office. And I said, I don't want to go along with that. I'm good conscious I cannot vote for that because I see the children suffering. And um, mm-hmm. so that was the first thing. And then, and, you know, you get the forums and you get the, the public school people are all up in arms because they, they take it personal right? because it's their job. So, oh, you didn't give us more money. What's your problem, man? I'm like, well, hold on. I just voted against it. You still got the money. So you really can't be mad because you still <laughs> got the money. But they're very, very mad because yeah. it was 99 to 1 and they want conformity. They can't, they're very insecure. Everyone's a thin-skinned diva. It's like high school in there. Like, everyone's just a kid who's very insecure. And so if you, if you have one legislator saying, hey, the school system needs massive institutional reform. They can't tolerate that. So they have to attack, attack, attack. Oh, you hate the kids. Oh, you want to make us poor. Oh, and then and this is the big thing, too. So school funding uh, in Iowa, a lot of it's related to enrollment. Mm-hmm. So if you have declining enrollment, which we suffer from for a lot of reasons with COVID is because the school policies were chasing kids away right. because they weren't providing any services. Before that, we just have aging population, rural Iowa. We need young families. You know, when it, So that was the big thing is we had declining enrollment. And that's really the source of the budget constraint. So even if we allocated twice the amount of money and I championed it on the floor, you would still be in the same budget crunch because your enrollment is falling. Right. So, again, just how these issues, I say they're complex, but they're not really. But they do require you to take a few hours to sit down and learn how. How schools are financed from state dollars, local dollars, federal dollars for things like funds, mm-hmm. and and really understand what is driving these issues that people are complaining about, and you realize how nonsensical it is, yeah, and and you see how emotional I am getting talking about it because it pisses me off, yeah, because because this is why we can't have good government mm-hmm. because nobody knows what they're talking about and there's just a bunch of crybabies.
1: Yeah, I we a lot of times in the liberty movement like to. Uh, kind of gloss over things like that. Or, you know, we're just, you know, we hate public schools as a whole. So, you know, it's it's the government and we just kind of like put it all into one camp. But what you're talking about with the breaking out of the funding is, is a really important piece to it because it really has a lot of, you know, wherever the money comes from is who makes the decisions on those pieces. So it goes to show how much like federal influence is happening in, on a local level.
0: It really helps knowing what you're talking about and its it, I think the hardest part of my job is figuring out what's going on. And there are a lot of legislator, legislators who are happy to vote for the budget who don't take the time to truly analyze the local finances of the school because it requires an uncomfortable conversation with their superintendent or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would say um, just further, being grounded in practical actuality, I think people want a shortcut to this, oh, I'm an intellectual, oh, my system of government can solve these problems. Yep. But until you can get... But people in their daily lives are in that practical level of actuality. And if I go knocking door to door, they care a lot less about my theories and about the John Taylor Gatto books I've read about how rough the <laughs> school system is. You know, if I gave them a lecture about how, uh, yeah, our school system was designed to basically create factory workers for industrial revolution. And mm-hmm. it's based on this Prussian model that wants conformity and submission to the, the, the state that's a lot less interesting than, Hey, um, this is what's going on with your local tax dollars in this community. And you know, you should, so anyway, it's, it's really connecting with people on a level that matters and is grounded in their daily reality. And I think that's what really harms a lot of, of the young libertarians is they're so, they they, they think they're smarter than they really are. And they are bright. I mean, they have great ideas and they're in this intellectual academic kind of big world picture. But, um, you know, the daily grind is based on the nitty gritty and the Mm -hmm. details matter and the devil's in the details. And, and yeah, and that's where you need to get those, you need to get those bona fides of.
1: Yeah, for sure. So you're, you're talking a lot about, uh, the health and well being of people. One of the, one of the main reasons that Breakey, uh, told me, or, you know, brought you up in our very first phone call when he told me just about coming down to media row, he brought your name up because, uh, you were working on some psychedelic work in Mm -hmm. Iowa. Uh, so I definitely want to hear more about that.
0: Yeah, so uh, we had the first ever legislation at the state level, where uh, it hasn't happened to the federal level. Either. So we had the first legislation in America to decriminalize the use of psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, we expanded that um, in that early bill to include ibogaine, NDMA, and I think I want there's another substance substance in there as well. Um, but yeah, we wanted to carve out, you know, at least a handful of these kind of entheogenic uh, substances or things. At least MDMA is going clinical trials now, mm-hmm. but or it started back then too. But so we had the first ever legislation, which was pretty cool coming from a freshman Republican in an overwhelmingly red state. Yeah. And then this year we also had the first ever legislative hearing, and um, so that was significant um, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and the issues just really snowballed since then. So it was really cool as a freshman legislator, you know, filing that bill, getting some national attention, getting invited to speak out at the Oregon Psilocybin Society, getting to knock doors in Denver and nice. be the first of the nation decriminalization and connected with that kind of um, nationwide mycelium network. Uh, so, yeah, we were. I mean, it was a great issue. It's, it's medical freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really a criminal problem. When I, when I touch the, the public safety folks, like, hey, how many arrests do we have for psilocybin in this state? It's it's negligible. They can't really find any. So, right. um, so okay. Why are we keeping this criminal? Why are we keeping this criminal if if the law, you know, if we're not having any problems with the law? Why? What's the justification for remaining criminal? Mm-hmm. What was the justification for criminalizing in the first place? As a Schedule One substance, uh, what is the nature of these of this? And, um, and a lot, again, a lot of lawmakers can't even pronounce this word, let alone describe what it is or what it does. <laughs> and a lot of law enforcement, uh, fall in that same
1: yeah. category. So they don't know the difference between psilocybin and like, lion's mane or some other mushroom that's not criminalized.
0: Well, what said is they don't want to know, right. and, then, and then they're cutting themselves off to a whole new world of health and healing. So mm-hmm. the best thing I, one of my favorite legislative moments is, uh, so we come back to the Capitol in June, 2020. And I go off on a big kind of rift where I um, was very critical of, of global public health and WHO. And um, I made some very colorful comments about the coronavirus. And um, anyway, so the liberal media just tore into me and I was like a laughingstock. And everyone was so offended because I made I said we should make fun of people wearing masks or something. Um, and I denied that asymptomatic transmission was something that we needed to take into account. So I, I said some controversial things. I was had some statements to back it up. Um, but it was, it was like a media circus, uh, mm-hmm. and then Black Lives Matter riot, was happening. So I had like a lot of just, you know, whack-a-mole. Like I was just a, a big bowl of crisis for 10 public re- relations disaster for 10 straight days. And then we were wanting to, I kind of regret doing this because I wanted to force the issue on, um, right now, Iowa code does allow for mandatory vaccinations in a health emergency, which, uh, Iowa still is in a declared health emergency. And there were a lot of problems with the way the law was constructed. So I'd wanted to address that, but it would have been addressing that issue would have possibly burned significant bridges with my caucus. And, you know, when you are likely facing a competitive election, you don't want to completely kill yourself. Right. Right. I mean, I'd already gone out pretty far with some of my comments. And um, so I didn't want to completely burn that bridge by forcing an extremely tough vote on the caucus on an issue that could be argued either way at that particular point in the pandemic. So we did uh, we did an amendment to decriminalize psilocybin so we got a vote on the floor mm-hmm. um, the first ever legislative vote on decriminalizing psilocybin and uh, we were able to get so I call it my genuine health and healing speech and I was very very happy with the way it was delivered um, it got a lot of really excellent supportive reviews it was um, I forget I'm trying to think of the right verb but it was very much lauded or i got i felt great about it it was one of those things i said everything i wanted to say yeah and i took the time to prepare and write a good speech and practice a little bit and it was kind of like my uh my crown jewel of my freshman year so we forced the vote on psilocybin gave a genuine healing speech and so i i went from radical coronavirus conspiracy theory to challenging black lives matter and standing standing off the mob at the capitol to forcing a vote on the decriminalization of medical mushrooms and getting a broad coalition. We had 17 votes, eight Democrats, nine Republicans, a complete diverse mix. You got your old school Christian conservative. You got your inner city black legislator. You got your radical progressive. uh, You got your radical libertarian. It It was just a perfect eclectic mix of the young Republicans with the progressive forward thinking Democrats on this vote. Mm-hmm. and it was really just a, a very great achievement this was before people everyone was wearing masks so i could see people smiling as i was talking and so yeah that was probably the most uplifting moment of my legislative career was being able to articulate the psilocybin mushroom and then going back to like why are you running for office in the first place that was something that weighed on my mind for a long time so mm-hmm. it was very life fulfilling and after that i said well hey i've i've made a meaningful contribution on this world i'm going down to the history books as the first guy to have state level legislation a state level floor vote on this um so i can die of coronavirus and i can live a fulfilled life i don't care anymore i've done something that no one else could do i made my mark on the planet Mm -hmm. so it was incredibly uplifting and fulfilling and and that's the i mean only this kind of public service can provide that so
1: yeah so uh, there's obviously a lot of people here this weekend that are thinking about possibly running for office in the next couple of years. Uh, a lot of people that watch this uh, actually, my audience is my audience is kind of split on the uh, as far as going through electoral process. I definitely have plenty of people in the viewership that are uh, straight up anarchists and agorists that uh, don't think that there's any hope there. But uh, a lot of them are politically active and, and looking to get more involved. Do you think that, uh, you know, state level is a good place to start out or uh, do you encourage people to get more involved in their local level first?
0: Yes. Yeah, so That's a great question. There's a lot of different ways I could take it. I think um, especially for the anarchists and the agorists, I mean, just going back to what I said before about being grounded in actuality,
1: mm-hmm.
0: realizing that um, political power is going to come from relationships, long-term relationships, relationships, it's going to come from people. It's going to come from community and being organized. So if the institution of government exists and it's in this present reality, then I don't think there's a problem engaging with it and, and using it to the best of your advantage. And again, right. the kind of argument that government power in its purest form you know, should be used to protect innocent people from malevolence. And I think there are a lot of wolves out there trying to prey on the sheep. And, um, so I, I think it's good that, I mean, well, one, there's so many ways to become personally empowered. So I don't want to discount the diversity of personal empowerment. I mean, right. you could go out and meditate in a cave, really connect with your soul, get a degree of self-sufficiency or self-awareness or just personal love or self-worth through that. Um, I mean, i have always saying like growing a garden is one of the most politically powerful things you can do. I mean just checking in on your neighbors, loving your family. I mean, having a good relationship with your mother and father, brother and sister, um, having a good household, finding a woman and being a protector and provider, or finding a man who you can uplift, or I mean whatever the proper masculine, feminine I mean, to kind of just live a great life. No matter who you are, be an empowered person, which means mm-hmm. take responsibility for every aspect of your life. No. And so that's the basis of, of, of just power in general, of being a personal empowerment. So start there. And then I was able to get involved um, in a couple ways. One, one of the things I did was I started testifying at the state house uh, committees. So in 2016, there was a big medical marijuana fight. And right. I wanted to, you know, I was able to have a flexible enough work schedule. I was able to go to the Capitol, testify, hang out with um, some of the other activists that were there. And and I have a little bit more public speaking experience than most people, especially within like the political realm and understanding how rhetoric and speech is powerful. And you really can use your words to, um, impact. Like, again, I I was going to say manipulate people, but I say that in a neutral way, (laughs) right. Right. That basically your words matter. Your words are powerful. And if you speak well, people will naturally gravitate to you. Mm -hmm. So even in 2016, you know, you testify at the medical marijuana, uh, committee and you give the best speech and you give a nice gentle but firm speech to the legislator so you, you use your words to connect with everyone in the room and then they applaud and they naturally gravitate towards you and then all of a sudden you're kind of the de facto leader just because you gave the most eloquent speech I mean it's really that's how that's how the collective political consciousness really unfolds is this kind of just looking around for okay who's going to lead us in the direction we want to go yep. and I mean a true leader does lead from behind I mean the biggest thing for me is always listening to my constituents mm-hmm. thankfully my constituents um supported ron paul very heavily going back to 2008 right know a lot about the issues and are able to you know keep a good direction on things so basically everything i'm allowed to do um, is because i'm supported by people back home so there truly is this kind of element of connectivity where at the end of the day the, the political leader that's elected is going to be a represent a representative a reflection of that district and i think that's just metaphysics and so when you look at why why are all these representatives lazy corrupt lying well look at the people who elect them and then look at yourself yep. you know uh, what have you you know for the people on the audience what have you lied about in your own life what are you not being honest about what are you cutting corners with what could you be doing better how could you contribute to the solution I mean, this is a big thing right now we're facing healthcare workers who are going to lose their job because they don't want to be guinea pigs in some experiment and they have to lead, they have to be willing to make the sacrifice. Yeah. Everyone's screaming, like, oh, please save us, governor, please save us, Governor DeSantis, Governor Reynolds, legislature. No one's gonna save you. We are all in this together, and you need personal empowerment so you can weather the storm and to the greatest extent possible, save yourself, and yeah. empower yourself. So I don't know if that goes in. So yeah, I think if, if me, I respond to the needs of the community. Like mm-hmm. I said, I got experience in the state house. Um, there was a big local issue that the incumbent was not taking seriously I took it seriously and it was just that easy there was a grassroots group three Democrat women were running it um but because I showed up and said hey how can I help mm. genuinely hey how can I help and then I did what they asked to help with and of course I could have like in my political experience like no if you you should do this this and this like I could have come in and be like oh do what I want you to do right like from that arrogant standpoint like I know better but no I said how can i help and even if i thought their suggestion was a little bit tacky or even a little bit counterproductive or not the best use of time i just did it because that's what they asked and so i i won over their support as someone who's truly going to help them and work Mm -hmm. for them right and that's what they wanted to see in a state representative so that's what got me the swing vote and was able to unseat this incumbent on an issue that he was ignoring and way and misrepresenting and kind of misleading and lying about but but he was definitely ignoring these people, and that's what gave me an opportunity. If I didn't have that wedge issue, if I didn't have something to say, hey, here's something that's important to you, then I'll do a better job than the incumbent. Yeah. What's the reason for voting for me?
1: Right. You know, what do I bring to
0: the table? I'm just another, you know, young, good-looking guy who talks too much shit or whatever. <laughs> and and, and what specifically really-
1: about Disney World, apparently. <laughs> well, I've
0: got a lot of animosity. These latest Star Wars films have been. <laughs> They're training people to be stormtroopers now that's the big thing dress up like a stormtrooper the, the films were so bad i i mean i gave episode seven a lot of grace i did cry in the the new hope one or what do they call it the the one that was a prequel to a new hope the, the rogue, uh, rogue one, one. i like that was good that was a good one they had the good character development in that they had the characters that i wanted to live mm-hmm. that i got but what like, i didn't watch like episode eight i just wanted all those characters to die I like just put the rebellion out of their misery. Um, Like it was just so, and it was really sad then to see Yoda disrespect the sacred Jedi texts. There was a lot wrong with it and it really represents the decaying of our culture. And um, so I will not be going to Disney world this year.
1: I actually, I haven't been in over a decade but I am a very big Star Wars fan and it's actually something that gets talked about a lot on the show. Okay. Uh, I've, something. I, I didn't
0: offend you. with. Oh
1: no. Uh, I've, I mean, I didn't, I didn't hate the Disney ones, but I didn't love them either. The cartoons
0: um, were pretty good. Mm hmm. Because they were cartoons. Also
1: solo was pretty good.
0: I liked solo at the end. I, it, I only liked the ending. The ending made the film for me. Mm-hmm. I thought the ending was very well done and that made it a good film. Yeah. Um, but even then, like the way that he was like, they were cheating in the Sabbath game or whatever. Like, dude, come on. Like, this is an intergalactic something. Like, you can't just have a card up your sleeve. Like, I'm not falling for that. Like, dude, this is, this is a universe where, like, you're, you're arguing with laser swords and blasters and stuff. And you're flying star cruisers around. Like, I think you got to have a more sophisticated method of cheating than just having a, a card up your sleeve. Um, it
1: is kind of weird. Star Wars always kind of blends that like futuristic with, with the like the, yeah. old Wild West but kind they of thing. glossed
0: over the lore, like that was the thing. Like so, obviously Han getting the Millennium Falcon in this game, mm-hmm. like that was a huge kind of part, and that sets up the whole thing at Empire Strikes Back on that landing platform. And then they kind of just glossed it over in a really kind of cheap way. But like, yeah, you know, that should have been. I mean, that could have been a movie in and of itself. Like that should have been. A, that should have been a half an hour of the film. Fleshing out that kind of relationship. I I mean, I that's because I I, that's what you want to see. Like when they're pulling those nostalgic. Yeah. I know. So the cartoons are decent. Um, I thought the the Disney sequels made the George Lucas prequels look a lot better. Um, All of a sudden,
1: Episode One's a
0: masterpiece. Uh, I'm just clipping that part.
1: Just episode one is a masterpiece. That's the clip.
0: Because with, with, uh, (laughs) I mean, it still has one of the great soundtracks. Um,
1: Very much agree. I do own.
0: I do own the soundtracks on vinyl. Um, After Mm. I got the soundtracks on vinyl, it does make you appreciate the movie even Mm -hmm. more.
1: A man of true class.
0: Yeah. So I actually got that. It was. um, I inherited it from my father. He had some vinyl records that hadn't been touched in thirty years, and I was like, "What the heck?" Empire Strikes Back, and then it just really is so epic. Um, and, and then again, it really makes you experience the, and just, and just the beauty of cinema. Mm -hmm. Um, now Murray Rothbard had a scathing critique of a new hope in 77, and that's an area that I do depart from him. And, um, but you know, he's a stodgy old Jewish guy. He has no taste. So, um, I I guess he's the economic godfather of this whole thing, but
1: a little bit, but I'm. I've honestly, I can say with confidence, I've never read a page of Rothbard. Oh,
0: really? Okay, so I actually have, and I'm familiar with his unique contributions to uh, not only you know political thought, and economic history. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't actually read his analysis of Star Wars, but Star Wars did have that. I mean, it's the archetype. I mean, it's the Jungian archetype of the hero's journey. Yep. And that's and that's what makes a great story, and that's what we need to understand and. I was, they had these trading cards here, and on the back they had archetypes. I need to see who wrote that because I feel like they got that all wrong. An archetype should be something that's sure. easily recognizable mm-hmm. on universal to the human experience. And um, Man,
1: I had yours on me.
0: Oh, that's weird. <laughs> that, so I did think, yeah, they did a good job. They finally used a photo I liked, which is yeah. good. Yeah, these Young Americans for used to use a photo that I disliked. They used a photo from the 2014. I, so I ran and lost in 2014. Oh. And that was one of my messages to the kids was um, – don't run for office until you really know what you're doing and and dip your toes in and and maybe Mm -hmm. work on some winning campaigns. That would be great work on some winning campaigns before you even consider running for office. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't have as much experience doing that. I worked on some good campaigns Mm -hmm. that won, but like I I ran and lost in 2014 and it was very humiliating and and it was hard for me because my identity, I wasn't, I wasn't identified with myself as a person. I put too much stock in this political identity. So when I ran for office and lost, it was like, okay. Well, who am I now? Right. And so you know, I, I have a bipolar depression cycle, like like a lot of people do. But and it was actually pointed out the fact that it took losing so hard kind of proved that I wasn't mature enough to hold the office. That was a good friend observed that to me and said that to try to cheer me up. But
1: uh, <laughs> that is a good that is a good observation. Yeah, and definitely I can I can echo the don't run too soon. I ran uh, I ran for New York City Council in twenty nineteen and New York City. Yes, that was. That was a fun. It was a fun time. It's a big apple. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was in uh, Flatbush, Brooklyn. How'd that go? Uh, so I I was running as a, as a libertarian against a liberal and a Democrat. Um, the Democrat was technically an incumbent, but had been elected in a special election just a few months earlier. Uh, she was endorsed by. All all of the various groups, both progressive and and very establishment. Uh, Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Democratic Party has a very tight machine sure. that they run. Uh, so I got I got three point two percent of the vote, uh, which actually was a record for the Libertarian Party in the city at the time. Okay. Uh, we've broken that since, uh, but it was it was awesome. I didn't. I had got more votes than doors I knocked and, like, people that I talked to. So there was...
0: So how many doors? Did you have a metric for how many doors you knocked?
1: Uh, well, we knocked... Uh, because most of my district is, like, uh, apartment oh, yeah, buildings with... Uh, so we, we did a lot more, uh, like, street canvassing and, uh, like, some street fairs and stuff like that. Uh, but we did get to knock the, the somewhat residential area. So we knocked a couple hundred doors. Uh, and then I got a little over a little under 400 votes out of, out of about 10,000. Um, so I
0: hope you learned something.
1: Yeah, I definitely, I learned that we needed to knock more doors and, and do more street canvassing. I didn't take the race nearly as seriously as, as well, I, I could have. what really should've. runs
0: the needle. Cause like you said, I mean, one party has a lock on the machine there. Mm. And so I I, okay, what happens if you just try to run head force in that machine politics and you want to challenge the Democrat as a Democrat, um, because it's just very interesting, the partisan makeup, and what I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand. So I'm a Republican, and that means a lot of different things to different people. I've been a Republican since 2008 because Ron Paul was a Republican. Right. And, um, and it, it was clear to me that like I had to stick around because just by showing up. Okay, showing up is really all it takes. Showing up is 80% of it, and mm. you don't have to have any talent to show up. You have to show up, show up on time. If you can show up with a smile, that's like another 10%. Like I said, show up to and just be pleasing to be around. So many people show up with a chip on their shoulder. Like, oh, I'm smarter than this person. I got all the right answers. Oh, you know. And it's they're just unpleasant people. Yeah. And um, so you gotta show up, and you gotta show up with at least some degree of kindness, and that's really all it takes. So I frequently wonder what would happen if a libertarian, you know, puts on the sheep's clothing and walks in and just starts showing up at some of these Democrat functions mm-hmm. and is really, really careful with their rhetoric and makes some genuine connection
1: i don't know obviously they'd probably um
0: i think they are doing very good now at the cancel culture thing of identifying people who step out of the group think and piling on them but like it'd still be a very interesting experiment i mean i guess tulsi gabbard tried to the democrat primary it'd probably be the closest thing we have as a presidential primary Mm -hmm. um what would happen in um you know a more local election or yeah precinct or something like that yeah
1: in in the city we have uh, we actually have a couple of candidates running next year that are going to be uh, – in New York, we have uh, fusion voting, so you can actually appear on multiple ballot lines at the same time, uh, which is a point of contention for a lot of people both in in the minor and major parties, and there's there's a lot of argument and discussion. But one of the things that it does allow us to do is uh, kind of like co-endorse a Republican or a Democrat that – that is running, uh, and will likely win the race, you know, if if they're in their, their perspective areas where they pretty much have a lock on the, on the race. If they're Liberty enough, uh, we'll, we'll cross endorse and, it is more often Republicans than Democrats, but downstate, it's becoming uh, a few more Democrats that are able to appear on multiple ballots. Next year, we're actually going to be running a few candidates that are going to be cross-endorsed with, like, the Green Party and the Working Families Party and some of these other so that's minor always parties. It's been a
0: very interesting coalition, because I voted for the Green Party candidate in 2016, because um, mm. I thought Gary Johnson was just not what I wanted to support.
1: Um, I like Jill. She was, she was a good candidate.
0: Well, Jill was... Wait. Uh, oh.
1: Oh, Stein in 2016. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I got confused with Joe. Yeah, Jill, Jill Stein. <laughs> she had the most outspoken criticism of Hillary Clinton's Syria policy, mm-hmm. which was as a single issue voter. That's what I was most interested in. Is okay, the president has the most authority over foreign policy. Yep. I want to vote for the candidate that I feel has the best, you know, statements on foreign policy, and that was Jill Stein versus the guy who was clearly not following the, you know, civil war that was being foisted on Syria at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so just voting behavior is very interesting and just don't underestimate how ignorant voters are and how many just don't care. and how yeah. They're more than happy to do what a party boss or someone tells them to do, and they're very happy to drown out any contradictory opinion because they, they really, really just don't care. And you know that they don't care because if they did care, they would be, you know, calling you up as a candidate and going to you for the information mm-hmm. rather than... Uh, and that's another thing, too. I think people don't realize like, how much they don't care, um, especially for people who... I mean, I, I'm an elected official, so I invite this. But you know, people send me videos all the time. Or want me to look at this or get my take on this? And it's like, like okay, one, I can do that myself. I know how to look at the news for me. Um, but like, if I if I cared, like I, I would you know I would have been reaching out and asking for it. I mean, maybe that's not the best example, but like in this type of thing, we're like, oh, just watch this, just watch it. Like, if this person cared about it, like they would care. Like, and I think people have to reach their own conclusions as well. Yep. So no matter how articulate your argument is. Um, unless you're like really good at building rapport and trust and you know them and there's like an actual collaborative path forward, like no one's really going to change their mind based on talking to you unless they somehow are able to reach the conclusion themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why asking questions is the famous Socratic method that goes, you know, it's been time tested in the sales process. So I had a good sales background um, that was able to help me for the political gig of just being able to knock on someone's door generate a warm rapport mm-hmm. where within a few minutes they are willing to open up about, Oh, Hey, like, you know, what do you think about your retirement or how do you think you you know, what you sent your kid to college? How do you think that's, you know, are you comfortable with that decision? Or is there any reservations about that? Like, you know, being able to pry at some kind of sensitive issues, like, Oh, you know, what do you really feel about this vaccine? Or, or, you know, how scared are you of COVID? And I thing like for people who've been wearing masks or again, a lot of this human behavior Like, I I know a guy who, you know, he, he was very skeptical, he's very naturopathic oriented, and he got the vaccine just because that's what his daughter required him to see his grandkid, you know, and a lot of people who are just behaving or adopting these behaviors for one reason or another, that's not directly related to like following the CDC. But they just want to keep peace within their household. They want to keep their wife happy. They They want to keep keep their their jobs happy. Precisely. Uh So there's all these complex social forces that govern human behavior. And then the libertarian asshole 22-year-old or whatever thinks that they can just kind of plow into the side and with their massive intellect and ego somehow shape this in their direction. But they don't even. Under, <laughs> but they don't even understand right. how many other competing social forces they're actually mm-hmm. up against, and why those social forces will trump 100 percent of the time whatever theirs are trying to do. Right. So, and that's thing, just building trust and like, okay, like, I for me in my position, mm-hmm. I, like, okay, I, I think that's the thing is, especially with these complex issues, whether it's critical race theory, school finance, you know, uh, mRNA vaccine and policy, public health, whatever. Psilocybin mushrooms is okay. I just trust that he's more or less truthful and has his heart in the right place that he genuinely wants to help people. Mm-hmm. As long as I can reach that threshold of, okay, yeah, he, you know, I maybe might not be super comfortable with some of that, but it's interesting. And he's a young guy who's got energy and I, he hasn't lied. Yeah. I can vote for him then. Like, it's like, yeah, it's just very interesting when we really get voter behavior in a microscope. I mean, and of course, that's the thing: is every voter is going to be diverse, and there are blocks that are issue motivated. Yeah. We're going to see a whole lot of that now with the school choice issue. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the Republican Party, you know, again, just seems to, that's what's so crazy about these political institutions is how much they just hate the people. Right. Um,
1: yeah, so I think weird. I think the liberty the liberty movement as a whole has had for a while now a lot far too many like economists and philosophers and not nearly enough salesmen and like uh people that are good at like interpersonal connections and actually like getting into that so we've been branded as this like cold kind of we, we don't care about poor people we don't care about disabled people you know there's like Ayn Rand definitely uh painted us in a in a fairly negative light there for a while uh and I it's been very reassuring to see new new people kind of coming up in the movement i mean ron was a great speaker but he was kind of alone in it for a decade and now you know we have we have people like yourself uh like nick freitas matt gertler uh you know other people that are coming up in in the liberty republican area and even the like the libertarian party has people like dave smith and spike cohen justin amash
0: cleaning out out the mess I don't know enough about Justin and master comment, but he's that's a whole other <laughs> political science investigation. Um, very perplexing. even Anyway, uh, I mean, there's a lot of sadness. There, obviously, there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of problems that need to be solved. So mm-hmm. there's no shortage of everyone kind of finding something to do. Yeah. So I've been able to kind of carve out this lane on vaccine policy where just because I got a head start you know, researching these things in 2019 all of a sudden I'm the guy that's best prepared to handle these issues when they come up in 2021. Um, So there's plenty of work to do, but I want to challenge a little bit because I mean like Tom Woods and Bob Murphy, they, I mean, they were able to create this wonderful group cohesion, but again, it's like the in-group versus being able to go out there and connect with a more common populist thread the way that Donald Trump was really kind of able to identify with the entire working class, or yeah. like millions of people versus thousands of people, because I mean there is a lot of great libertarian community. Um, mm-hmm. and I think you know this group represents that, and, and for sure. But but it is it's, it's just how do you branch out? How do you yeah? How do you just gain legitimacy? And and it's it's interesting because it's um, well, especially for us because we want to maintain like a high level of purity and principle. And then, you know, there's people on the right we agree with really well on some things, but disagree on well, the same with the left. So how do you actually build a coalition? How And, and I mean, the, the education is important because, um, yeah. And I mean, for me, like I'm a sheep too. I'm just shepherded by, you know, by people like Ron Paul, by Robert Kennedy Jr., this guy Del Bigtree. I mean, there's a lot of people I rely on too, to, to kind of get my intellectual framework. Uh, Aaron Siri, I think is the name of the attorney that's really done a lot of the informed consent work that... Um yeah, I, was, I was thinking back in 2019, I was listening to legal depositions on vaccine litigation, you know, a nine hour thing, just because I was driving <laughs> back and forth to Des Moines all the time. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think it's two: is investing in little actual skill sets and expertise and finding that niche. Um mm-hmm. and, and finding a skill too, a productive skill. So yeah. obviously, you know, the audiovisual broadcasting, cinematography, editing, writing is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, public speaking. I mean, just all these different data management is always huge.
1: You said that uh, last night on stage, and my girlfriend, who's very good at data management, was like,
0: "Okay, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, because she's employable. Yeah, because she can provide an actual skill to Mm -hmm. an organization, and then you know, they're not going to fire you. And that's the thing. So right now with these doctors, we have a. Facing the vaccine mandate, we have these doctors that are like critical care specialists. That if they walk, it's going to create big problems. So, oh, we'll we'll grant you an exemption, right? And it's like not good enough, you know. So, but it's but it's, that's how it works. If you present an irreplaceable skill,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, people are so there is like a meritocracy does exist. There is. You know, there is a competency hierarchy that people are, especially in America, mm-hmm. um, that they're looking for someone they can trust and that, yeah. and that you can ascend up. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of nepotism and cronyism involved as well. But that doesn't mean that meritocracy doesn't exist and that, that you go out and be the best at something, you're not going to be recognized. Right. And especially in this period in time when we are all able to connect instantaneously across the globe, um, I mean, I think this is an amazing environment for some enterprising you know, fearless risk taker, courageous person to really, you know, start a brush fire of Liberty and really bring a lot of people together. So, yeah, um, you
1: know. well, I think, uh, I think we're getting kicked out of the room here in a bit and we've got Nick Freitas and Kane come speaking here oh, wow. in a few, uh, but those are big speakers. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you so much for, for coming on. Yeah,
0: for the questions and the show. And uh, yeah. anyone in the audience, check me out. Uh, PeaceLoveIowa.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Shipley 77 on Twitter. So hit us up. We'll have to continue the conversation.
1: Yeah, and, for sure. Um, uh and then the we're gonna be we're gonna be out here in the hallway uh live with a couple of different people uh, as they come and go pro- uh, around about 7 30. so definitely right. uh come on back have, have cool. a little bit more of the conversation well hey great for the opportunity thanks everyone for tuning in yeah thanks Revolution Twenty Twenty One guys thanks so much for watching again we'll be back here live at uh 7 30. Uh, until then keep up the fight